Last time we were together in our spiritual warfare series, we focused our time upon the enemy that we call the world. And when we considered the nature of that enemy that we called the world, uh, it was essential that we understood that what we were not talking about there when we said that the enemy is the world is that we look out around us and we see the inhabitants of the world or even necessarily the material things that are in the world and see them as our enemies. Indeed, the inhabitants of the world we would consider to be our mission field, right? They are the ones that we are there to preach. They are the, uh, preach to. They are the ones that we are there to reach. Uh, we are to love them in the way that Christ loved them for Jesus died for the world because God so loved the world in that context. And we talked about that together. And then we also mentioned not material possessions, that these are inanimate objects, these material possessions, most of which in themselves have no intrinsic morality. But rather, when we say love not the world, it was specifically those things listed in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. For they are not of the Father, but they are of the world. It is the direction and the philosophy of humanity through these things, right? How the inhabitants of this world uh, utilize the material possessions of this world. How the inhabitants of this world, the direction that they go with the emotions that they feel, with uh, anger and with jealousy and with, with uh, uh, lust and, and, and all of these various elements. The appeals to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life through these things manifest both through people and objects. Well, this week we move on to what is perhaps um, the, the easiest, the most obvious, the most evident, the easiest to, to understand of the three enemies with which the Christian fights. We said last week in, from Ephesians 1, the world, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So last week was the world, this week is the flesh, next week is the devil. Whereas the world may not necessarily be at any given time a major obstacle for the Christian in that there are always ways in which we can control our environment to minimize the effects of the world around us. And whereas, as we'll see next week, the devil is also a bit of an inconstant because he may or may not seek to attack us at any given day or any given time. And, and even to that extent, the Lord might put those hedges of protection about us at various times for various reasons through the prayers of God's people or whatever it might be. The unique thing about the flesh is that of the three, the flesh is without a doubt the most constant battle, is it not? It's a constant battle because you can't leave the flesh at home when you go to work and you can't leave the flesh at work when you go to home, uh, go, go home at the end of the day. It's, it's, it's there, right? It is you. It's attached to you. It's a part of you. Um, if you're not a believer, it, it's, it's, it is you. It is your definition. If you are a believer, then there are two natures inside of you. One is uh, known as the flesh. The other is, is the spirit of God. And these two are contrary one to another, as we'll see in our time together today. The flesh is a part of me. It comes with me wherever I go. It stays with me day and night. And to that end, it is quite a foe. And before we begin our consideration of it, we must understand what it is. Like with our consideration of the nature of the world, so too with our consideration of the flesh, we must be careful that we understand what the Bible means when it uses the term flesh because it's not always speaking of something evil. Remember last week when we were talking about the world, we distinguished between the inhabitants of the world and the things in the world versus the direction and the philosophy of the world. Because we're called not to love the world, and that exact same word is used in John 3.16 to tell us that God so loved the world. 
So we needed the nuance of context and of distinction. The same thing is in play when we think about the nature of the flesh. The word flesh is used 130 times in the New Testament and most certainly not all in relation to something that is evil or something that is wrong. It can speak of meat that you would eat, chicken, steak, probably not speaking of pork all that often in the, in the Bible, but uh, pork, right? This is flesh. It speaks of the body, the material part of us. My body is flesh. The actual idea of me having a physical body, the, the, the New Testament will describe that as me being in flesh and bones, right? And we see these uses throughout the New Testament, phrases like flesh and bone, as an expression of a living person. So we find the first instance of this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 7, where Jesus says, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. When he says flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, he's not making a statement about something evil or negative. It's simply a statement about that which is of this world, that which is, is, is material, uh, did not reveal it to him, but that which is spiritual, Right? This is a spiritual versus a material idea, not a sinful versus righteous idea. It's used a similar way describing living and breathing humans in Matthew 24. When Jesus speaks of the end of the world, he says, And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. Once again, this is simply speaking of humanity here, right? Jesus is not saying that unless those days are shortened, evil people or evil things or evil manifestations will, will not be be, be saved, he's actually coming to destroy those things, right? Destroy the works of the flesh. Uh, but he's rather simply speaking to the nature of humanity there, uh, of living beings. Of course, we could go on throughout the Bible citing these things time and again. Uh, perhaps there's no more relevant, however, than in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, where Jesus says this. Um, but as many as received him, excuse me, I don't think this is Jesus speaking here. I think this is John commenting. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we see in verse 13, the natural use of the flesh to mean a breathing human uh, to mean that which is of the will of man, right? There's a, there's a juxtaposition here. Then, because after this, in verse 14, we find that the word, this title word, being keyed back into John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was, was not anything made that was made, right? So we're talking about God. And then verse 14 tells us the word was made flesh. Now, as we walk through our Bible doctrines, we're not going to substantiate it all today, but I'll take for granted that you agree with me on this as it relates to the Bible, that the word is Jesus Christ and that Jesus was the sin, sinless man. That Jesus was one found without sin. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in all points like as we and yet without sin. And in that, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We know the Word to be Jesus, the incarnate second person of the Trinity. 
So for the word to take on flesh certainly does not mean that he took on the works of the flesh. He did not take on sinfulness, but only rather that he took on the human, material, temporalness of our bodies. So we see, and we could again continue through the New Testament to understand, that flesh, the word flesh is not always speaking of something inherently sinful, nor do we need to see the fact that we are in these bodies. We, Paul calls his body a body of sin, and perhaps you feel that way sometimes. You look in the mirror and you say, I just want to shed this body of sin, and I, I, I wholly understand that concept, believe me. And yet we also must recognize that the actual material elements of our body are not in themselves sinful, right? That, that the Spirit of God can take our our flesh in the sense of our body and use it for, his, for, for righteousness in the same way that what we'll see in a moment is called our flesh equated to our sin nature can use this same vessel unto evil or unto wrong. So the vessel itself is driven by something. And the something that the vessel is driven by is the thing that is either the right or the wrong. It's not the vessel itself that is being driven. And also throughout the New Testament then, and that by and large in the, in the epistles of Peter and Paul, we find the word flesh is used in this deeper, more nuanced meaning to, meaning to imply something that is evil. An indulgence in the physical and the material but not just using the physical and material, but indulging it at the expense of the spiritual, at the expense of that which is righteous, at the expense of that which is, is godly. And it is often, though certainly not exclusively, described with the phrase, the lust of the flesh. So it's not necessarily just the flesh, but as we would understand the, the thing that is the problem, it is, as we saw last week relating to the world, the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh. In Ephesians 2 and in 1 John chapter 2, we see this idea. We, we looked at the Ephesians 2 one last week. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of, the of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And then 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh, the impulses that originate not from the compulsions or motivations of the spiritual or unto the spiritual, but rather the impulses that originate from the compulsions and motivations of the material and the temporal, and more specifically, from the part of us that exists inside of us from birth, that is dead in our sins, separated from God, from the part that is inside us that is twisted, that's that word iniquity, that is rebellious, that's the word transgression, that is weak and frail, that's the word sin. Sin is an archery term literally meaning to miss the mark. It's to miss the mark of faith as understood through faith in God's character, God's word, or God's will. When you miss the mark of faith in God's character, God's word, or God's will, then you are, you are sinning, right? You are missing the mark. Transgression having the idea of a purposeful and a knowing breach. It's the idea of rebellion. It's when I know that the Bible says, don't cross that line, and I go, 
over that line, right? That is transgression. It's not as if I'm just frailly missing the mark. It is that I am jumping over the line. And then there's iniquity. And iniquity literally means a bending or a twisting or a perverting. And that's when we take the things, and this is often what the flesh does, right? It takes the things which God has, as we talked about last week, naturally ordained or or designed in us, and it bends them and it twists them and it perverts them into something that is contrary to God's will, contrary to God's word, or contrary to God's character. And this is the lust of the flesh, right? This is that part of us that we regularly and often will call our sin nature. That there is a sin nature inside of us that is predisposed unto rebellion. Prone to wander, the the songwriter said, right? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we see this described in a number of places by Paul. Mentioned Ephesians chapter 2 already, verses 1 through 3. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Right? We were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Notice the correlation between walking in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and being dead in trespasses and sins. Notice also, though it's not yet the focus of our time, the reality of victory over the flesh is rooted in the quickening or the making alive of those who have been saved by grace through faith. So that if you were to continue to read in Ephesians, particularly Ephesians uh, 4 and 5, you would find this idea that Paul espouses greatly. It's the same one that he espouses in Galatians chapter 5. It's the same one he espouses in Romans 6, 7, and 8. This idea that if you are dead to sin, as you were once dead in sin, and so a child of disobedience, and so blinded in your mind and in your heart, and so following the lust of your flesh by the very nature of, of your being, once you have been quickened by the finished work of Jesus Christ, made alive by, by, by belief of the, uh, in the gospel, once you have passed from death into life, once you have been brought into newness of life, don't live in that darkness. Live as a child of light. And of course, Ephesians 4 calls us to do that by putting off the old man and putting on the new. So let him that stole steal no more. Instead of lying, speak every man truth. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. And so we we have this putting off and putting on principle calling us to abound in the new nature that Christ has purchased for us and that we have been born into by grace through faith. Now, in that, Paul has to commit a good portion of his epistles to exhorting believers to live in that new nature it stands to reckon it's possible for believers not to live in that new nature. Your old nature doesn't go away when you get saved. Your old nature is still there. And as we've given the analogy before, if you think about it as two animals inside of you, the one that you feed is the one that's going to be strong, is the one that's going to grow. And then when you start to starve a certain nature. 
particularly as we would talk about fighting this battle of faith, when you start to starve the flesh, a starving animal fights. It fights until it's too weak to fight anymore. And so we see this idea here. Dead in trespasses and sins. Coming back to the nature of the flesh itself, we also find an apt description of its subverted and perverted nature in Galatians chapter 5. This is perhaps the best definition that we have in the scripture, most succinct at least, of the nature of the flesh. Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17, Paul writes, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice this, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. We see this particular problem not being that we have a body, but rather that our flesh intrinsically lusts after those things which are against the spirit. That the body that we do have, while the body itself is not evil, is predisposed unto, unto desires that compel us to work outside of God's design. So that our, in our mortal bodies, there is an intrinsic bent because our spirit is separated from God when we're born and until we are born again unto those things which are evil, carnal, sensual, devilish. And this is the flesh. This is our sin nature. The part of us that we are born with, born separated from God, born craving those things which stand in opposition to God, and we contend against this flesh for we who are in the Spirit. If you are, have accepted Jesus Christ by putting your faith in the gospel that Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and he rose again the third day, and you have received thus the Spirit of God living inside of you, there is inside of you a battle of sorts where the flesh contends against the Spirit and the Spirit contends against the flesh not necessarily our physical body. It is not as if when the Spirit of God wants us to do something, our actual body is resisting, but rather that there are impulses inside of us that are drawing us to use our body for our own purposes and against the will of God. And then there is another nature inside of us that is calling us to use our body unto the glory of God, for the kingdom of God. This is the battle, and this is why we can very confidently call the flesh an enemy in this spiritual battle. And we all know this battle quite well. I don't have to wonder whether or not you fight that battle, because you do. I do. We all do. There is nobody that does not. It's a battle which we must fight every day. It's a battle that is manifest in its fruit. And it's a battle that is not manifest in each person in the same way. We all have different propensities. We all have different struggles. Some people struggle with certain propensities of the flesh that other people have no temptation toward. Some people have a tremendous desire to, to, to have things, so much so that they will even steal to, to gain. Other people have no real temptation in that regard. Some people have a tremendous desire of lusting after that which is not theirs by right. Other people don't have so much of a problem in that regard. Some people have a tremendously hard time telling the truth. They, 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 their nature compels them unto lies. 
Other people don't have a problem in that regard. Some people uh, uh, will, will uh, have issues with uh, uh, self-affirmation or desiring people to care for them or like them or, or to look good in the eyes of others and so will, will, will be hypocritical or will elevate themselves or, or it can manifest itself in, uh, in any number of ways where the other people don't really have that problem. We all have different ways that our sin nature bends us away from the will of God, compels us to seek unto satisfaction or contentment outside of the, God's design or outside of God's, God's provision. But we've all got the problems. We've all got the flesh. So that even when in our minds, in our hearts, we seek unto God, we find the flesh is ever-present, calling us back to the things which are, and I'm going to use the word against God, but may I use another word? They're calling us to those things which are against God. They're calling us unto those things which are comfortable, easy, natural, falling into those habits, into those ruts, into those predispositions of the bent of our flesh. So that oftentimes when Paul is speaking to the Ephesians or the Galatians or the Corinthians, about the nature, or the Romans, it's, it's in all of them, about the nature of, of, of walking in the Spirit or of doing what is right, he, he contrasts it with what they remember of their past life. What glory have you in those things of which you are now ashamed, right? He will say. Or when once you walked in the darkness of your minds as children of disobedience, recalling the time where they were living dominated by those predispositions and those bents. And then he says, now do something differently. Now walk in a different way. Don't stay bent. Because there is a, a, a spiritual, a, a, there, there's a muscle memory that if we're not careful, will bend us back to the shape of convenience and of ease. Overcome only by walking in the Spirit. And so the flesh is ever calling us back to the things which are against God, so that Paul says you cannot do the things you would. And he describes this battle, if you're familiar, in Romans 7. We'll come back to Galatians 5 in a minute. But in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes this, For when ye were, there's that call, right? For when ye were in the flesh, the motions of sin, notice he is defining how he's, how, how he's viewing the flesh here, and he's defining the flesh as the motions of sin, the things that we did in sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul, to this point, is speaking primarily about the relationship between believers in the law, not believers in the flesh. But he's talking about a time when his when his flesh was having its way with him because he was under a law which could not afford him any power against the intrinsic sin nature. It told him that what he was doing was wrong, but it didn't give him any power to do what was right. 
And so he lived in this place of frustration. And that's the place that is going to bubble up as he continues in Romans 7, as he describes this law, which told him how bad he was, but which gave him no power to do anything else so that he lived in a place of condemnation and shame and frustration. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, because the commandment itself wasn't bad, it's just that it could not help me live. I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Sin and the flesh are synonymous in this context, right? He had already defined that. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, there it is again, right? The motions of sin, which is the flesh. That's what he said already. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. That word carnal, meaning that which is of the flesh. I am sold under sin. That is my natural predisposition. For that which I do, I allow not. This is the battle, right? For what I would, that means what I'm willing to do, that's what I desire to do in my mind, that do I not. But what I hate, that which I don't want to do, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. If I'm doing the things that I don't want to do, if when I sin, I, I, I'm sinning against my will, but I can't do anything else because it's my natural predisposition to do so, then I am by nature of the fact that when I sin, I don't want to be sinning, consenting that the law is good, that the law is righteous, that the, what the law is telling me to do is what I ought to be doing. I, in the very fact that I feel bad about the things I'm doing, am consenting that morality exists and that the law does contain it. But that doesn't mean I can fulfill it. Verse 17. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. There is a part of me that desires to do right, but then there is a sin dwelling in me as well that is compelling me to to do wrong. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, there it is, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Sin, flesh, and death are all equated in this passage, recognizing, and this is Paul speaking to the nature of man as it relates to his his even a, a right and natural desire in his mind to do that which is good, the law of God that is written on the hearts of men, but an incapacity in the flesh to perform that which is good. Now, of course, Romans doesn't end with chapter 7. I was talking to a guy in the jail this last week, and he, he, was, he was saying how he got on the phone with his 14-year-old daughter who has gotten interested in, in uh, reading the Bible 
and uh, she said that she was going to read Romans 6. And so he said, I'm going to read it too. He said, why don't we read Romans 6 and 7 together? And I told him, I said, don't, don't make her stop at Romans 7, please. It, it ends right there. That's really discouraging. Don't stop, at, uh, don't stop at the end of Romans 7. If you're going to read Romans 7, go on at least to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But there is the, now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. There is therefore now. That's how it starts. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Don't stop with the frustration. That's the frustration of the sin nature against the law, which tells you you're a sinner but gives you no power to overcome it. But in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. The condemnation of the law is dead to me because I walk after the Spirit, not after the letter. Therefore, and, and by walking after the Spirit, I'm not walking after the flesh. That's what Galatians 5 told me, right? If you walk in the Spirit, ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The flesh, the sin nature, that part of us which is rooted in this body, the cravings and the desires of this body perverted by sin to operate in contradiction to the nature of God and that divine nature born in believers by grace through faith compelling us unto righteousness through obedience to our new nature rooted in the indwelling spirit of the living God. And if you're human, and I think most of you are, and you've lived long enough to be even marginally self-aware which I think most of you are, and you have had in any way any impulse to living a life defined in some measure by morality and decency, of which I think most of you have, then you know this battle, don't you? You know this struggle. For the unbeliever, it's a losing battle. It is, in fact, the essence of their lives. But it is also this very battle that is the strongest impetus in the lives of many to come to faith. That they've tried everything to be a good person and they realize that they simply can't do it. Because you can't, Christian. Non-Christian. Alike. If you're a Christian in here, you've already recognized this. It's intrinsic in, in, in re receiving the gospel. But for you who are not in Christ, you cannot be right, be good, you cannot do enough, be good enough. It's a losing battle. Because it's not simply a battle against impulses that you can discipline yourself out of. It's a battle against your very nature. When Jesus came and he was speaking to the Jews, this was the great debate. I heard someone ask in an interview a while ago, What's the biggest difference between Judaism and biblical Christianity? There's a Jew who was interviewing a, 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 a Christian pastor, and um, he didn't give this answer. But the answer is that, like every other works-based religious system, the Jewish works-based religious system judges people's morality based upon outward actions. And if a person can discipline their outward actions to a sufficient extent, then they are righteous. And Jesus came and said, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you that if you hate a brother in your heart, you've committed murder already, right? You have heard that it has been said, thou shalt not uh, commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already. Jesus was saying there, 
even if you re are able to restrain the deepest element of an impulse that would lead you to using your, your body to enact some immorality, the moment that it is enacted in your heart, it proves that your nature is, that it shows the dominant nature. It's already sin. It's already, you've, you've already lost. So it's a battle against our very nature, and it is only conquered by being given a new nature. Read Jeremiah 30 to 33. Read Ezekiel, the, the valley of dead bones. And God was promising here, he, he, he promised that there would come a day where he would give Israel a new heart, right? Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. What was he promising there? A new nature. Not just a reformation of what you are, but something brand new. So this is the enemy. What happens when the enemy is winning? What is the manifest reality of the power of flesh in our lives? Back to Galatians. We read verses 15 and 16. I'm going to skip to verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In the battle over the hearts of men, this list is uh, various marks of a life that is being controlled or dominated to some extent, by the flesh. This does not mean that you do not have also a spiritual nature. This simply means that to whatever degree these are manifest is the degree to which the flesh is still dominating in our lives. Like with everything in our lives, we, we have a battle that is raging inside of us, but the, the thing that is winning will bear fruit. And this is the fruit of those who are, uh, who, who, in whose lives the flesh is winning. The first four are sexual sin, adultery, sexual unfaithfulness, fornication, sexual perversion, uncleanness, sexual impurity, lasciviousness, sexual overindulgence. You are seeing the manifestations of one who is living the power of their flesh when you see these things. When you see spiritual perversion, idolatry, placing anything in value or favor above God, witchcraft, engagement with the spirit realm apart from God's designed methods, you're seeing manifestations of one who is living in the power of his flesh. When you see those driven by their emotions into unstable, erratic, compulsive, or destructive decisions, such as hatred, treating one another with contempt, variance, a general state of disagreeableness toward one another, seeking for conflict, emulations, this is the idea of rivalrous jealousy or contempt for others, Wrath, the outworking of anger in some sort of physical manifestation of, of, of abuse or of, 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 uh, of violence. Strife, pursuing discord and disharmony, tearing things apart, making them disharmonious. You are seeing manifestations of one who is living in the power of the flesh. When you see spiritual instability and disunity, seditions, those who are actively working, not just in their spirit, but actively working to divide one another. Or heresies, the word there literally meaning uh, questioning. It's not wrong to question everything, but heresies in this context would be the questioning of doctrine and of truth. You are seeing manifestations of those who are living 
in the power of their flesh. When you see intemperance that drives men to envy, to murder, to drunkenness, or to reveling, reveling being the idea of debauchery or, or um, absolutely uh, um, unrestrained um, revelrous behavior, you're seeing manifestations of one who is living in the power of his flesh. And if it were just this, if it were just that list, well, then we could go, oh, good, checklist. Let's just work down that checklist. Tamp down all of those manifestations and we're in good shape. Except then Paul puts in these three obnoxious little words, and such like, which means he was just giving examples, right? Which means I can't just go down a checklist. I have to do this funny thing called walking in the Spirit. I can't just discipline these things out of my life and say I'm good. I have to live inside out. I have to walk in the Spirit and let God do the truth bearing in me because I can't just discipline truth into my externals. And it is this that, uh, that causes our flesh, our sin nature within us, to be a great enemy in the spiritual warfare that we rage. Because our flesh, in our flesh, Paul said, dwells no good thing. Because man is bent to evil, not bent unto good. Because man is born dead in his trespasses and sins. And for those who by grace through faith have a new nature, the old nature is still there, still longing, still craving all that exists in opposition to God, still desiring self-gratification, self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-worth above the truths of God. And with those words I just used, you can perhaps understand, at least in part, why the message defining this enemy is so important. Because it can be insidious. Things that the world around us might define to be good things can be things which, while they have naturally positive outcomes, such as the Jews' religion in the days of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were good people. But that doesn't mean they were spiritual people. It doesn't mean that they were God-pleasing people. And so the world around us will take all of the things that they say, these are good things that you're supposed to do, and they will wrap those things <clears throat> in, in a veneer of discipline and uh, of, of um, philosophical jockeying back and forth with our minds to try to manipulate, coerce, or otherwise guide us into right behaviors or right thinking while simultaneously ignoring the reality that those things are there because we are indulging a old, the old nature rather than the new nature. Among many within the proximity of Christianity today even, the flesh is not seen as an enemy, the flesh is seen as an asset. Self is not called to be set aside, it's called to be harnessed, elevated, even celebrated. So that self-esteem, self-love, self-fulfillment no longer becomes evidence of the flesh's attempts to subvert or to survive, but rather becomes essential goals for many. So that people seek unto happiness in the fulfillment of those essential impulses that fundamentally define the flesh. And as long as they can do it in a manner that gives them some measure of, uh, of uh, um, clearing of their conscience or pa pacifying of their conscience would be the word. They're content. And as we've seen in doing so, 
if we ever seek to utilize the nature of the flesh itself, of the sin nature itself, to bring about moral actions within us, which is possible, it's possible to discipline our flesh in that regard, it is still without question, by definition, indulging the flesh and thus by nature rejecting or not walking in or not living in the new nature and the spirit of God. Because the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh and they are contrary one to another so that you cannot indulge them both simultaneously. Subsequently, we call the elevation of the flesh from its place as enemy to the place of advocacy as humanism. A philosophy that believes that natural human impulses of the flesh can be directed toward rightness and thus by directing the natural impulses of the flesh toward rightness, we can create a moral society and thus find within that moral society utopia. Right. Whereas God says, through the Apostle Paul, I know that is within me, or I know that within me, that is within my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And the compulsion of the Word of God as it relates to our sin nature and our spiritual nature is to deny the flesh, even in its moral incarnations, and walk in the Spirit. So that rather than trying to discipline the outward, rather than trying to uh, uh, just discipline the externals and hope that some of it finds its way in. I submit the inward to Christ and then allow the Spirit to unkink me, to iron me out, to remove the bent that I have in the predisposition toward the things of the flesh. Humanism says that the sin nature into which we have born is not an, a liability in our effort to know our Creator, but rather its greatest strength and its asset. And as we will, we well know by this point, um, this is the exact same thing that Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan never told them that they would be separated from God. As a matter of fact, God told them they'd be separated from God if they sinned. They ate of that fruit, and Satan said, no, you won't. You will be closer to God. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And Adam, of course, accepted this, bringing mankind into the spiritual warfare to begin with. Now, as with the world last week and the devil next week, so too with the flesh this week. I hope that our time together brought any number of insights to your mind. But as of right now, I am introducing you to the enemies. And I really, as I said last week, there's a method to my madness, but I'm not super comfortable with the method in that I am presenting all of these problems, but I'm not today presenting you the solutions. We are going to come to the, the, the warfare presently where we fight back. What do we do to fight back against the world, the flesh, and the devil? But this is our introduction. This is our understanding of the battlefield. This is, this is us knowing our enemy. This is us recognizing the, the tactics at play. This is uh, the, the message that introduces these things to you so that as you're walking through your week, you can start to see the difference between trying to discipline your flesh and trying to walk in the spirit. 
that you can see the difference between the flesh's impulses and the spirit's impulses. Just as I exhorted you to do last week as it related to the world, where you step out into your daily life and you start looking for the things that are of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Identify them. See where they come from. See where they are. See how they're getting into your home. See how they're getting into your life. See where these philosophies are finding uh, strongholds, finding footholds. you got to know those things before you can start to build the barricades, before you can start to commit the resources to defense. So too this week with the flesh. Where is your flesh dominating? Where are those places in your life where you have indulged the flesh? You know what the flesh is. You know what its manifestations are. You know the battle that we're fighting. We have to acknowledge it's there. We know that there's two natures inside of us. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, where are those natures manifest? How is the battle going for you? This is what we're looking for this week in order that you can then be ready to commit the resources as we continue through the series to those areas which are most needful. So we took time today to understand this enemy. And of course, if you want to jump ahead of me, you've got all the passages to do it. Romans 6, 7, and 8, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. You've got it all there. You can jump ahead of me, read the Bible, and, and, uh, and the Spirit of God can help you through those things, or, you know, we, we'll talk about it in a few weeks. But let us spend our, some time this week to consider this enemy, the flesh, not just the body itself, but the nature inside of us that takes this body and this mind and compels it to crave those things outside of God's design for us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.